Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Today's episode of Office Talk is also sponsored by Future London Academy. Are you looking to build your creative practice, develop better business strategy, and lead a larger team? Join Future London Academy's MBA for Design Leaders and work alongside creative leaders from around the world on topics like leadership, finance, and business strategy. Over the course of five two-week modules hosted in London and California, you'll go behind the scenes of the top design agencies and most inspiring companies from around the world while receiving bespoke mentorship from CEOs, CFOs, and design leaders from companies like Dropbox, Spotify, Pentagram, Wolf Olins, Zaha Hadid Architects, and many others. The Future London Academy program is specially designed for creative leaders with 15 plus years of experience, and each cohort is limited to just 30 people. So apply now for the July 2023 intake at bit.ly slash chief designer. That is bit.ly forward slash chief designer, or check out the show notes for the link. Joining me on the show today is Miriam Fanning, Director of MIM Design, one of Melbourne's leading architecture and interior design practices. In this episode, MIM and I discussed her process for interviewing new clients during the briefing stage to learn as much as possible about their likes, dislikes, and daily rituals, and why she believes these discoveries help the studio to develop more authentic design concepts. We looked at how the studios develop new offerings in furniture selection and art curation, looking at the details of managing budgets and logistics to the marketing benefits of having highly resolved projects and the potential for repeat business. We spoke about how MIM communicates the overall design process to new clients by giving them a look inside the drawings and documentation of real-life projects so that they can more easily grasp the deliverables that the studio provides and the outcomes to expect at each stage. We spoke about the campaign MIM is taking on with the Design Institute of Australia to push for better recognition and protection of interior designers' professional expertise and titles. And finally, we had a quick look at how MIM approaches the studio's photo shoots, marketing and public relations, with a focus on heavy investment in key projects, exploring new opportunities for media exposure, and her experiences working with a PR agency. So I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Miriam Fanning from MIM Design. Mim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave. I've loved listening to all of your podcasts and it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. As always, maybe we should start off with a little bit of a background on the studio and what you guys do and, yeah, tell us a little bit more about Mim Design. Wow, where do I start? I yeah. guess it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a story. Uh, Mim Design's 23 years old this year and even when I say that, I'm still... I don't even know where the 23 years have gone, to be honest. Um, working in this industry has always been quite interesting and different and challenging. Um, we're located in Melbourne. We are a studio of 30 team members and our projects sort of range from multi-residential to residential, to hospitality, commercial, events spaces, furniture design, furniture curation. Um, we're a very integrated studio. We have an architectural um, section within our studio as well as interior design as well as furniture curation. Um, we love what we do. 
um, I guess the big thing about what we do, it's all very different every single day. Yeah, it's always different. What it, what makes it different every single day is that, that you've got that variety of different kind of specialties that you work on, the interiors, the objects, the architecture stuff. Is it sort of the mix or, or just the, the clients or what, what brings all that variety to it? It is the variety is the, is the key word. And we are very, very big at at being responsive to different types of projects. And what's really nice is the projects that we get to work on are all very different to each other. So, you know, we could be working on um, a multi-res project in in Sydney or we could be working in a corporate interior environment. Also in Sydney, in Melbourne, we could be doing a brand new um, residential property from scratch, architecturally interior, as well as curation. So there are so many different factors into each project that brings us together on different levels within the studio, which is really, um, really challenging, but it's a good challenge. So do you ever hear people in business saying, oh, you know, you need to specialise and find a niche and kind of do all that stuff and you and you sort of go, oh, I don't think so, you know, doing a little bit oh. of everything is kind of more enjoyable or better business or what, what's what's your feelings? I, I mean, exactly what you have just said. I think if, if we were doing the same thing every day and the same type of projects every day, 23 years would not have transpired to this time. Yeah. I'm a very big believer in in finding projects that are different and challenging, but also with the way that we work and the way we produce our projects, each project is different. It's like we were talking about kids before, Dave, and, yeah. you know, each project is like a child. They, they each have a unique personality and each client is different. So I I guess you can never say that what we work on is exactly the same or we just churn it out. That's not what we are. We like to come up with different creative ideas, respond to our projects, respond to our clients in unique ways and really think about um, many different aspects that come along with these projects, you know, that they're pragmatic, they are commercially driven if they're multi-res or if they're for businesses, they're creative if our client is a really highly creative person. I mean, that's a given. They're always creative. Um, We hold ourselves really accountable for each project and delivering an outcome that's unique. And we love that. Sometimes, you know, when we're sitting in workshops, we might be pulling out our hair a little bit because the challenge is to come up with something we haven't done before. And after 23 years, that's, that's pretty hard to do. But it's always about coming back and thinking about the philosophy of each project and why we're going to do it different and what it means. So it is refreshing. Yeah. We do think differently on every project and I think that's what sort of kept us going for 23 years or particularly me for 23 years. The rest of the studio is not quite 23 years, the, the team that works <laughs> there, but everybody there is really driven by design ideas and creating interiors as well as architecture or spatially something different. It's always yeah. like trying to think of, of something that's new and fresh and, and something that our clients are going to resonate with and collaborate with us on so we can yeah. get an outcome for them and for us. And talking about the clients and, and them each kind of being different, something that you mentioned to me the other day was talking about your process for sort of interrogating your clients and trying to find out a lot about them and what their sort of philosophy is and what they're into and sculpture and art and film and all that sort of stuff. So I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about that because I think that's um, yeah kind of interesting. And then we'll get into a little bit of the architecture interior stuff. But I'm, I'm interested in your process and what you guys do in terms of these interrogations. Are, we, are you kind <laughs> of like throwing someone in the back of a van or what's what's going on? Yeah, yeah. No, we throw them in a room and tie them up. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly, until they tell you they're real brief, yeah. right? No, it's not like that at all. <laughs> Look, I think, um, you know, the word interrogation, it can be a scary word, but if you break it down as to what it actually means, it's it's about finding out everything you can about one person and, or their family or the way they live. And for us, when we do, when we undertake a project, design isn't just about creating a space. It is actually understanding why we are creating it. And to get the best 
result is to actually design with reason, with thought and with form and with practical capabilities that make that person emotionally bond with those interiors or that interior or that space or that building where they just love being in it. And it becomes a very comfortable emotion because they don't have to think hard about why they love a space or why they should be in a space. It just feels right. So for us, interrogating is really finding out everything, you know, like what's their favourite restaurant? Why do they love it? How many dogs have the, are they going to have if they don't have one? Um, does your husband snore? All these, all these incredible things that, you know, you don't usually get to ask people or you'd think it's quite rude to ask them that if you came across them. But we do ask the mechanics of everyday life um, to our clients. So we can make sure that their home is absolutely suited towards them and, and they can connect with that space, as I've mentioned. Today's episode of Office Talk is also sponsored by Mast Furniture. Mast Furniture is an established furniture design and manufacturing company based in Brisbane. They've been in operation for 10 plus years and built a national and international reputation for producing original furniture of the highest quality. With an in-depth knowledge of traditional woodworking techniques combined with utilising modern technology, mass production capabilities position them uniquely in Australia to produce high quality, technically challenging furniture. Mast enjoy working with architects and interior designers on both residential and commercial projects, and their range of furniture is small yet considered. In March of this year, Mast released their new Beam collection. Designed by Adam Cornish, Beam focuses on the marriage of upholstery and timber and how to strike a balance between the two. So to learn more about Mast Furniture, visit their website, mastfurniture.com.au or check out their Instagram at Mast Furniture. Is that something, you know, looking at the 23 years of the practice, that sort of process or those questions that you ask and those forms that you get clients to fill out and things like that, I'm guessing that that sort of thing wasn't there perfectly crystallized at the very beginning of the studio, but maybe it was something that was a bit of trial and error over the history of the practice. Like, were you feeling kind of like, oh, we need to know a little bit more about these clients. So I'd just love to know when you kind of figure, figure this stuff out and at what point it started to become part of the process at the studio. I think, Dave, when I first started, I'm a very inquisitive person. So, so from day one, though, you were, yeah, you were even though, Yeah, even though I didn't have a, a form that my clients would fill out, I would always ask lots of questions. And even if it was, you know, doing a retail store or for a business, I would always ask more questions about the business and what it meant, the brand, what's the story about behind this business, what drives it, like mm. just the being able to get the knowledge so you can understand what you're designing for was always a big thing for me. And, you know, I think it was always part of our briefing sessions it's obviously organically changed into this massive form, but always lots of questions were were asked at the very start of a project. I think the word interrogation sort of came when I went on a trip to Stockholm with Julux and we went to an amazing marketing firm and the founder gave us a, a chat and he used the word interrogation and it just resonated with me. It's like, oh, my God, he is the same. He asks a thousand questions. That's actually what we're doing. We are yeah. interrogating people. So that's sort of where that came from, from me. And I often say to clients, I'm going to interrogate you. And they go, oh, my God. I said, not in a bad way, in a good way, of course, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I think it's natural. I think if you're designing for reason, purpose, and you want to make sure a space is delivering exactly what it needs to, it's only natural to ask a lot of questions to your clients or to people who are going to be working on the project that you need to create something or some something for someone else as well. So yeah. I think it's a natural progression. Yeah. I guess moving on to something a little bit different, architecture, interiors, loose furniture, purchasing objects and things like that, it's... I guess, interesting how you sort of structure the practice and how much there is of each of those different categories or are they all sort of seen as this seamless kind of holistic integrated service or do you guys see yourself more as interior designers or I guess like I'm interested in kind of digging into that a little bit more just in terms of 
how you sort of see the practice, yeah. how you like to put it forward in, in those categories or, or does it belong in any of those categories, I suppose? I think that's a really great question because I often ask myself that because primarily we started as interior designers and of our studio, the majority of um, team players or team members that we have are interior designers and the numbers are greater in that department than architecture and furniture curation. But at the same time, you know, I do believe that projects work better when everybody understands a project from the start and we're all working to the same common goal. I guess two answers to this question. Mm. Regardless of size, I do believe in in true integration. Mm-hmm. On the projects that we're doing architecture for, the interiors are always working at the front end with the architectural team and then we work together through that concept and documentation and tender phase right through to construction. So they're very parallel and aligned. But at the same time, we want to also start thinking about furniture and curation mm. at the very start also with our clients because sometimes you have projects and they don't leave enough money to finish their project off. And it's those beautiful pieces that become part of their own collection at home that also make a house or make a residential or make a corporate, wherever it may be. So it's something that can't be ignored. So we do mention that at the very, very start and we might do a budget and a spreadsheet and a plan. So there is some budget actually parked for that to happen and it's already implanted into the start and the front end of that project, which is really important. So important. Yeah, we don't (laughs) force that on our clients at all. We ask them, are you interested? And more more often than not, they say yes. So it's really good for them to understand the total value of a project, but also the process of actually doing all three. It might be, for example, um, the furniture at the moment, lead times and what's happened in the world has made things so much harder to get in mm-hmm. relation to furniture that, you know, we would then program out selection and ordering maybe a year to 10 months in advance prior to construction. Yeah. Yep. So it's really important that that all of, all of those designers come together, architectural interiors and furniture at, at main points within the project. So even though I would like to say it's integrated, there are moments where, you know, there's key response modes that need to happen with each section of the business. Yeah. So going back to this idea of having this conversation with clients about uh, furniture curation and stuff like that, which is something I'm always interested in when it comes up on the podcast, because I think what it results in sometimes is I'm looking at it from the marketing perspective and going, oh, the photos are beautiful, which is obviously a pretty superficial kind of outcome of the whole thing. But I sort of look at it and I go, oh, everything in this project is perfect. It could be furniture. It could also be landscape. You know, I had Nielsen Jenkins on, they were talking about how early on they're really like very focused on making sure the landscape is considered and not just an afterthought in the budget. So it doesn't just end up turning into a bit of grass at the very end, which kind of ruins everything. Um, so I really like that, but it sounds great that your clients, you're finding that they're, they're, re- they're keen to have that conversation and to engage you for those services and they're motivated and educated and inspired by the process and they get it. Like, that's great. I mean, how did, how did that happen? <laughs> how do you have these great clients? They're not all like that. No, they're not all. Okay. That's wishful thinking for me. No, but you know, I think people have become a lot more educated with um, how businesses in the design realm actually work and what they offer. And we started doing furniture maybe about five years ago. Oh, okay. So fairly recently. Yeah, because, you know, we were asked to do it, but we sort of did it, but it wasn't really processed process driven and we really thought that in doing furniture it it needs to have a process because it can get really messy it's actually quite a a hard detailed job to do Mm. from budgeting through to selection through to making sure your clients you know love it um being able to offer suggestions solutions being able to work with some of our clients quirks and understanding what they might be you know, we have one client saying, can you please make sure you pick a Christmas tree 
for us or you know and we're like what a Christmas tree you know <laughs> things that you get you get asked for, for very varied things which is really always interesting and sometimes quite a giggle but in a good way of course and I think the biggest thing that we discovered in doing furniture in any design aspect actually is trust with clients because it's almost you are in furniture you're you're selecting you're curating and you're almost selling so it's it's very different to interior design 101 and it's very different to architecture all three are, are different to each other and this is where the trust element is so integral to that part of the business because these clients are trusting your selection, trusting that you've done all of your homework on every technical aspect of what you're selecting, trusting the cost and the parameters behind the cost, whether it's being shipped. I mean, that's the other thing, timelines. Like you actually have to project manage that part of the business right down to delivery. And often with our projects, with furniture, we aim to have it all delivered in that last week within one week. We we don't How's really that possible. <laughs> it's pretty That's crazy. and we, we do that for a reason because we every when you're doing furniture, everything works with each other. It's just not a an individual piece that works on its own. Yeah. You know, you might have 20 things that all have to work together and when you actually get them randomly delivered over a period Mm. of a month, it just doesn't give that client the confidence of like, oh, my gosh, is that going to be right? And when you actually do deliver them all like Santa Claus, I often say, it really like is a great to see the client's uh, face when it all gets delivered. It's a great thing. It's like it's the rug goes down, the massive sofa, everything sort of all happens within that week. And it's almost like that final element of transformation, which is really fantastic. And it is like Christmas. So I would say, okay, this is going to be like Christmas. It's really hard work to do it that way though. And a lot of coordination as well, but I think it's really important. (laughs) That's pretty amazing. As I'm currently waiting until July for some dining chairs and going, I wish that could have been coordinated (laughs) that it would all come in one week after moving it. It's so good because you're right. I think having a long time after you're in a new place, it's very kind of usually very kind of hodgepodge. You have some things, not other things, and you never really, you don't feel like it's quite there until no. until everything kind of comes together. But, but that's that's great. And also it's not always perfect. I mean, you yeah. know, some some furniture makers where they're overseas, you know, they yeah. might they might make a mistake. And, you know, this beautiful marble table that you might have ordered yeah. is wrong because it wasn't checked and it's another three months to get it replaced. Mm. So, you know, being in Australia, lead times with overseas furniture is also, you know, you've got shipping added on to that. It's it's actually about really being a very good planner when you're doing furniture. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting though. And then we also do accessories and artwork as well. And we had one project which was quite funny. We had to do, I think, 850 coat hangers and we never get asked to do that sort of stuff. And they just said, can you pick some coat hangers while you're there and and pop that in? And we're like, coat hangers? So lovely client. You know, we, at the end of the day, it is about the relationships as well. And we were more than happy to to assist with this client. You know, they're they're incredible people, incredible family. So, you know. When you're working with clients on stuff like that, I mean... It kind of reminds me a little bit, uh, closest experience I have is kind of working with branding and graphic design on, you know, my own business. And now if I need to do anything graphic design related, I email them and go, help me, <laughs> you know, like, cause you've got that person who is there, who's helped, who gets it. And they're always going to be able to help you with that follow on stuff. And I wonder, is that kind of the same for you guys? I mean, do you sometimes have a bit of an ongoing relationship with your clients? Cause I think about architecture, it's like you do the job, the building comes up, the architect and the client, they might never even see each other again or even talk ever again. But I feel like when you're getting down to that level of, you know, coat hanger purchase decisions. <laughs> Couldn't um, believe it. <laughs> I kind of wonder, do you do you find yourself, um, do you ever, do you just get phone calls, client going, oh, I think I'm looking for a new, you know, watering can for the garden. Yeah. Need some help. Look, we, we probably <laughs> a lot wouldn't. Of hourly, uh, imagine a lot of hourly rates here. but We probably wouldn't go to the extent of choosing 
a water can, but a lot of these clubs yeah, bad have, example, but. Have, have, <laughs> have actually come back and said, look, we want to start an art collection or yeah, it's yeah. more about things that they want to collect when yeah. they come back. But likewise, you know, with interiors and with architecture, we've got a lot of repeat clients that yeah. is fantastic. They do come back or they send a family member back. Like we've got one particular client where we have done a house for and we're now doing a wine bar for the family, which we're just about complete. It's been, it's an amazing yeah. little wine bar. But we're also doing every, we're doing all of their homes for each family member. So it's like, and the brother's yeah. saying to, to us, don't tell my other brother what I'm getting. And, oh, yeah. and the sister's like, I want something completely different. So it's quite interesting to, you know, how, to, how working with one has worked, ended up working with a whole family. And we just... We just love it because they're all so different but they're all so lovely too. So mm. and they all understand how we work and I think that's the key is at, at the very front end is to really be up front with our clients that we have who we do repeat with and our future clients or our potentials is how we work and how we like to work with our clients and how we like to produce our process to get to completion. And that's a really important part of what we do because often if people aren't in the design world, they can't understand Mm. drawings or they're not sure how we actually work, we have case studies that we actually show our potential clients. And when they actually engage us, they actually know at what point and when they're going to get things. So they're never, I never want to have them left at that situation where they're saying, I just don't know where I'm at at a project. Where are you at? Where should we be at? I mean, that mm. is the worst feeling to ever be in. And mm. we don't really want our clients to sort of go down that path of not knowing where we're at. So our processes are, are very considered to make sure that we are running to program, but our clients are also really comfortable at each stage yeah. and, and our understanding what they're getting from us. So so those case studies, I'm interested in that because I think I see so many of my clients trying to put together welcome packs and case studies and things that talk about the, you know, the different stages, the kind of the five stages of the process or in the UK they talk about the RIBA stages and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's interesting when you can actually use projects to kind of illustrate it because I think it maybe gets the point across a little bit more clearly to clients so they can relate to it a little bit better. So I guess I'm interested, how do you, how do you kind of structure these case studies? What sort of level of detail is in those? What are the main things that they sort of cover? Do you, do you have like different case studies for different types of categories of projects that you kind of whip out depending on the client? Or just, yeah, tell me more about these. Well, it's interesting. If we have an inquiry, often, you know, we will talk to them on the phone, find out about their project. And I always feel if they are interested in working with us, they'll want to come and have a cup of coffee with us. And we can mm. get to, and I always say, let's get to know each other, see whether you like us, see whether, you know, it's a two-way street, whether we get along. And often it depending on the project that we're talking about with them, um, we might pull up a project that we're working on right now to show the process because that project might have some similar elements to the one that they're coming to see us about. So we don't actually have these case studies that are set in stone in our studio mm. that we continually show at the same time. Yeah. Because, you know, it might be for a completely new build, architecture, interiors and furniture. So we would show a project where we have done that that might be extremely modern. So we would show something that would be similar or we might be doing an architectural renovation to a Victorian home that has a modern extension. We have a number of those and we would show them, you know, our process from schematic to planning to concept to design development to tender and then to construction drawings and then on site and if that project is finished, we'll show the finished photos and the way that if they like that and they really like us you know we write a submission and our fees are actually broken up into those phases so when they actually understand get the submission they'll understand what each stage is costing and they'll understand what they're getting for each stage so it's it's a really simple process we have obviously capability documents for each sector that we share with our clients and we send them to them for them to have a look at yeah. But at the same time, we want to be quite 
organic with our case studies. Like we might show two different jobs to them while they're talking to us just to show them that we do do projects that are very different across the board. One could be really heritage driven and one could be really modern. They're never the same. So for us, it's, it is about getting them to understand the process of design that works for us and that works for our clients, but also the reason why that process was done was um, obviously to be accountable, to be efficient, and also for our clients to trust us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you just kind of, it almost sounds there like you're kind of pulling out, like opening up the the project, um, the project folder on the server <laughs> for this, for whatever this comparable kind of project is and going, hey, like, here's here's what real drawings look like here's what real is it getting to that kind of level of yep you're just kind of going absolutely here it it is we'll show them a finishes yeah we'll show them a finisher schedule from a project a fixture schedule we'll show them our dd and explain you know how much work goes into our our documentation we'll show Mm. them sections we'll show them pretty much everything and it's as i said it is as you've said just opening up something straight off the the hard drive and going into it. And I think that's really important because we're very big in marketing and brand, but we're also, we're approachable, but we're humble to the point where not everything always needs to be polished. It is about the quality of the work too. Yeah, because it doesn't sound polished. <laughs> yeah, it's not a slick brochure. Yeah, that's the thing because I think you you could have made a really slick brochure that would kind of sanitise things a little bit and you'd see just you know, a few, a few glamour shots and a really like curated sketch, you know, or something that doesn't really show much of anything. And th- like, I've seen that a million times, but I don't often see that level of just going, Hey, we're just going to show you stuff like the real stuff. Well, <laughs> that's know? what we do, but we are yeah. pretty real. And like our documentation in our studio is really like full on. And, yeah, you know, I guess for us, when we finish a job, I always, you know, go back to the builders and to the subbies that were on the jobs and sort of ask for their feedback on our documentation, their feedback on our scheduling, all of that. And it's really important because they're the, they're the guys that actually have to build what we've designed and it's always important to get that feedback. So we are very documentation astute yeah. And we, we like to hear good feedback. Like we've got a couple of builders that, that keep coming back saying, we just want to do your drawing, work on your mm. projects because of the documentation. But we've I guess what we've also found, and this comes back to trust mm. with our clients, if it's really good documentation, you're going to get less RFIs throughout the construction process of the project. Yeah. And in having less RFIs, it's going to save them money. So for us, you know, we we want to make sure everything we work, everything we design works and can be executed properly. And, of course, on any project in construction, you're always going to have questions, queries, changes, but and you can never, ever limit them down. But you can always try and help the process for the builder and for the client too by doing good documents. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we probably didn't need need to get into this particular topic, but you did bring up something the other day about kind of like that there is some sometimes blurry lines out there in the industry um, amongst sort of people that are marketing themselves as interior designers or stylists or decorists or like, you know, a whole bunch, there's a whole range of different options out there that kind of look like interior design, but they're maybe not. So I'm just interested in coming back to that maybe a little bit because you bring up the standard of your documentation being so high and the and the uh, the builders that you're working with going, oh, that's great, which gives me the sense that maybe they're coming across some documentation out there in the industry that is not so great. And then they're kind of really happy to see yours. And I know this is a topic that you get very fired up about. And I am kind of interested just to hear a little bit about it, just in terms of, um, I guess, this, this thing that you've been pushing on in terms of um, really the classification uh, of designers and, and, and some regu- regulation that you're kind of keen to change as well around the sort of the part of the market that you're in. Yeah, look, I think it, it's it's really interesting. I think the question you've just asked me, I think every interior designer in Australia would probably roll their eyes and go, oh, my gosh, you know, that we all feel the same way. And At my question? Or- <laughs> no, 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 not, <laughs> a, not a your question at, at all. At the problem, at the problem. At the problem. And I yeah, think it yeah, comes yeah. down to the very coalface at the very start is that the public doesn't actually understand the difference 
between the whole um, behind de- design practitioners and what they do. And we often have this question, like I'm in a Design Institute of Australia, a small group, and, you know, sometimes we would sit in meetings and we'd talk about somebody coming to to chat to you and they think that interior designers might just, you know, choose some curtains and maybe pick a cushion and, and we just sort of giggle because they think that that is what we do but yeah we we our job role is 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 so much more diverse than that and even with you know people who are curating furniture there is a lot more to it than just picking something because it's pretty um we and I think the problem is in our industry is that it's probably a multi-pronged problem is that the general public doesn't understand the difference um, with what we do and there's a number of TV shows that sort of don't help our industry at all when it comes to that. And I know you're having a giggle on the over there in Western Australia laughing at me as I say that. But there are a number of TV shows which give us false representation of what our, our profession does. And I think knowledge is power and if the public understand the knowledge or understand what each practitioner does, it's actually better for the public and it's better for the industry as well. At the moment, um, you know, every state in Australia has different regulations and some of us are able to be registered and some of us are not dependent on, on what your legislation is locally or statewide for each each state. So at the moment we're working with the, the Design Institute of Australia to actually start to think about having um, interior designers registered as registered interior designers of Australia, which is RIDA, and there is a whole heap of classification that comes with um, the interior designers that are registered. Obviously, you know, being in Victoria, we I'm registered with the VBA, um, as a draftsperson, not as an interior designer, because they don't actually have a classification mm. for an interior designer. Yeah. Um, this is something that we really, really want to to get put into place because we are doing everything from obtaining briefs to project managing to coordinating to working through construction to being on site, all of those sorts of things. And at the moment, it's it's not really classified. And an interesting story. You know, with the Design Institute of Australia in Victoria, I think we have, um, I think there's something like 8,000 members in interiors and there's only like I think 120 that are registered. And now Mm. registration is really important because of your insurances. Um, My numbers that I've just said could be wrong. So Jo Kellick, who's who's the chair, she might go, Mim, your numbers are wrong. I'm really hopeless with numbers when it comes to that stuff. They're somewhere in the ballpark. But they're somewhere (laughs) in there. But it is a a very small number in comparison to what the membership is. And being registered means, you know, you follow the NCC, you follow neighbours, you follow everything in relation to what you need to do. It just means we've got a lot of practitioners that are probably leaving themselves exposed and we want mm. to make sure that they are protected. Um, but at, this, at the same time, we also want that to flow through to education over a period of time. When you are studying for this, you are actually recognised for what you're studying. And we all know, you know, architecture has got it sorted so well. You know, they are protected. Mm. Interior design is not protected as an industry and I think that's something that we're really, really working hard um, you know, with the DAA, there is a there's a group in each state that is try, that is going through this process to actually lay the fr- framework for the future for interior designers, and that's also going to help stylists. It's also going to help decorators because then they're going to become renowned for what they are in their industry as well, and there mm. won't be any confusion. So there's yeah. a lot of work to be done and, you know, it's yeah. it's sort of you've got to go to the Victorian government or New South Wales government and then you've got to go to federal. So there's a lot that has to be done yeah. in the next couple of years to do that. Yeah. I hope that didn't sound confusing. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, it's interesting and I think I really want to pick up on the part you brought up about the public perception and, you know, even talking about the popularity of the sort of the TV shows that are focused around interior design and renovation and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of a lot of times you'll hear that spoken about as kind of a positive thing for the industry, I suppose, because it's like, oh, cool, you know, people are 
people are getting interested in design and home improvement and all that sort of stuff or architecture with grand designs and everything. I think it's mostly positioned as a kind of a positive thing, but but you're kind of right to bring up that it kind of maybe devalues <laughs> to in some respects or, or or maybe it's more like makes people uh, think that you don't need to be a professional to do it. Is that kind of the, the, uh, the sort Dave, of the 100%, 100%. Like Grand Design does it the right way. Like those projects take years and yeah. they do have professionals working on them. And, you know, that's a great example of the public understanding what practitioners do and the realness and the authenticity behind what is done. We have other projects which have, okay, you've got three months to do a whole house. You've got to do three rooms in one week and you've got a school teacher who's got no idea of interiors designing a room. I don't think that actually helps our industry one little bit. Sure, it might be that it's great for the public to see built things on TV, but it actually devalues us in a huge way. And it puts an expectation on us as practitioners that everything has to be done so quickly. And good design or great design takes time and takes process. It will not take a week or 10 days to do, you know, half a house. You don't even think that way when you're a designer. You actually think of a project holistically from the very front end. You don't break it down and do it bit by bit. And I yeah. think, you know, as much as, you know, entertainment is is fun, it's great, I think it would be refreshing and it would be valuable for our industry for us to be represented in a way that's real. I feel like there's always going to be a space for kind of DIY related content, right? Like, you know, the idea of the sort of things that you kind of would do to your own house and then seeing people doing things to their own house on TV. And there's kind of like a little bit of a, there's maybe room for that, but it's like there isn't a lot of space that's given for the professional version of it. It seems like there doesn't seem to be a lot of shows that really show what the professional version of the process looks like, or maybe it's kind of dress up DIY as the professional process. I don't know. It's, it, it is interesting. I understand why you kind of get fired up about it, but I think if it's I'm sure DIY, other interior think, designers will, yeah, I will think get they, it. I think they all feel the same. I think if it's DIY, that's great. It's DIY, but yeah. don't go into a show saying, oh, so-and-so is doing the interior interior design and this is what we're trying to protect yeah yeah, is if it's DIY house it's DIY house but you know interior designers work really hard and I know I'm speaking for a great number of people work really hard to get to where they need to get to within the industry and it's it's not a glamorous profession it's a hard profession um, it's a rewarding one, and but every profession comes with challenges. But um, I think there's this this whole sort of what's the word? Everybody thinks it's glamorous and it's pretty, but mm. it's it's not. It's yeah, it's real. You know, yeah. it's hard. Like every every industry, like architects, industrial designers, we all go through a bit of a hard slog. And I I wish it was treated in in that way when you saw those sorts of shows. If it's DIY, yeah. it's DIY. I've got nothing against any of that. But I think when mm, you yeah. are changing the terminology, you've got to protect it and you've got to make sure it's right. Yeah. No, it's really interesting and it's um, it, it's an interesting insight because I haven't haven't really had people bring it up too much before on the podcast. So it's a, oh, but, I'm the but first so, one. Great. <laughs> well, potentially, but but the concept of of a profession being devalued, you know, architects like you can't, can't shut them up about that. You know, there always there always there is always an issue that's um important and and one to talk about. But I, I haven't heard so much about uh haven't heard about it as much or haven't uh, met as many people talking about it in the interior design space. So I think it's really oh, interesting. Look, uh, yeah, it is a huge thing, right? down to you know copy furniture like we're the only country in the world that allows for replica furniture to be sold so you know I think as a country we've got education when it comes to the public is is really integral for our industry moving forward definitely no actually that's a really great example I mean um a couple of uh, interior design studios I've spoken to when having a conversation about kind of what are some of their values as a, as a brand and uh, as, as a practice. And one of the interesting ones that has come up before was them saying that, you know, we're really, really um, 
kind of strong advocates on this idea of being ve- well, being very, very against kind of imitation and kind of knockoff furniture and you know, and not the real deal. And that's something that we're very vocal about and kind of always have that conversation with our clients. And you hear that and I go, actually, you know what? That's actually a really important, that is a really important and fundamental value for that practice in that in that industry. It's so important. Um, so it's great to hear about these um, these areas that I guess from the architecture perspective where I kind of come from a little bit more, I kind of don't hear as much of those particular set of issues, but it's really interesting. Yeah, I think it's really important um, or design authenticity, you know, mm. It's just the strength is in the word alone and that's what we should all yeah. be trying to do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I have to ask you about marketing because we always need to and you're so good at it and it's a shame that I've left it for kind of the last 20 minutes because you're <laughs> you're really <laughs> great at marketing and communications. Um, I want to know about your photo shoots uh, because I know that they're a big uh, they're a big operation. You you invest heavily in in photography, getting your projects right to present and all that sort of stuff. So, I guess you know, walk me through your philosophy and I suppose process around photography and any other sort of part of your marketing or content that you think is really key to what's made you guys so successful. Wow. Um, well, marketing and branding is is so important to us. As, as a business because, you know, on some of our projects with, a, say, for example, it's multi-res, they'll come to us from a branding perspective because it's another element to the project. Mm. And, you know, that that is what it is but also we've worked really hard at, at branding and also at getting our projects out there. I think, you know, we're not in an industry where you can just take out an ad and put a glossy in a magazine. That won't fly and people think, oh, why are they paying to advertise? That's not something architects or interior designers sort of do. So every project we shoot, that is our one opportunity for people to see our work. But it's also an opportunity for our clients to celebrate it and our team to actually be really proud of it. So it's a really a three-pronged thing when we mm. when we shoot a project. When we we usually like, for example, this year we we write the list of all the projects that we we're going to shoot. We don't shoot every project. Everything. We'd be, yeah. We'd be broke if we we did because they cost a fortune to shoot. Yeah. So you you strategically you don't say okay I've got X budget. 100 grand, let's split it evenly across every single thing we did because we want to shoot everything uh, and then maybe that's at the detriment of some of our better projects. Instead, you go, let's identify the strong projects here and then put the full sort of resources behind Correct. Those. Yeah, that's the way that we, we do that. And we then sort of talk about the types of projects and what they are and, you know, what the story is behind each project. And alongside with that, we then, you know, select a photographer that would suit that particular project. Yeah. Um, we do work with an external communications and MPR mm-hmm. agency, which I know has been on your show before, Neil Hugh Office. Yes, NHO, big fans. Yeah, um, they're great. Um, we were doing it all on our own until about four or five years ago. I was Yep. And having them on a board is just is been fantastic. Yep. They understand it, it, where we are, what we want to be, where we want to go, all of that. So that's that's a huge yep. help. So we would flag all of those um, projects. We would flag, you know, okay, we want to make sure that we are getting this project, eyes on this project from a workplace point of view so we can pick up more workplace. We want to get eyes on another project, hospitality, so we could pick up some more hospitality. It is also not just about shooting and celebrating it. It's about creating an outcome to getting those inquiries that we want as so well. So can, can I just sort of jump in there? So you're thinking it's part of your process of deciding on which projects kind of get the get the opportunity that get all the photography and everything you are thinking about obviously the quality of the work but you're also thinking about and this kind of reminds me earlier when you were talking about how you use kind of current and recent projects as part of your kind of client onboarding process you know you want to have something similar to what they're doing that you can kind of pull up and you mentioned earlier that you're all about kind of variety so it sounds like you know you're keen to make sure that you're filling those 
any perceived gaps where you go, oh, we actually don't have anything like that in the portfolio. Well, let's let's get something like that hospitality project and then let's make sure we shoot that one. We've then got something like that that can help us in that sector. Like are yeah. you sort of thinking about that a little bit? Yeah, obviously we we do. I mean, there's some sectors we just don't want to work in. So we don't go and shoot things if, you know, if we don't want to be in that sector. But also we won't shoot, we'll, we've got to be real about it. We won't shoot the project if we're not proud of it. So if it's hospitality yeah, and it doesn't warrant a shoot yeah, and it's just a small job and we don't think yeah. it's going to help us, we won't shoot it. And I think that's any yeah. practice, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, You've definitely. got to think strategically about where it's going to go, what it's going to do for you and what it's going to drive at that that other end. Yeah. And I think that's important. And, and being published is part of that, but also having, you know, on your, it on your social media as a tool is also equally important. Yeah. And with, our, with the publishing world changing so, so much, you know, it is about understanding where things can go and what they can mean as well. Yep, yep. Um, but when we do shoot a project, a lot goes into it. We will plan out probably like a month before the project is ready to be shot. And yep. from there we, we have a call sheet, we have a project management sheet of exactly what we need for that shoot, what we need to take to that shoot. Do we need anything extra? Do we need accessories? Because often that's a thing that just doesn't happen. And funnily enough, Dave, when we do take accessories, like one of our last shoots, the client bought pretty much 80% of those items to keep. <laughs> so, you know, it, it is interesting because sometimes they're the things that get left off at the very end. Mm. Um, so we do go through all of that. And then depending on whether it's a one-day or a two-day shoot, I would love to have one of those little time-lapse cameras so you can see how much running around and how much millimetre movement of a, of a sofa or a chair needs to happen when you go on to a shoot. Um, we have a small team that then goes on to the shoot and make sure everything is in place from lighting to positioning to styling and then we're also, you know, other things that you don't see behind shoots, we photograph things if we've if we've borrowed accessories so we unpack them photograph them shoot them professionally then pack them up shoot them and make sure nothing's damaged so we are really wait what so (laughs) wait so you've you've borrowed these accessories so you've gone to some um you've gone to some brands and go okay hey we're doing this shoot uh it's going to be awesome let's um let's you know let's do some nice product placement of your stuff and we'll borrow it for the day but when you're saying shoot it are you are you saying like take some really good marketing photos for that yeah. for that for that yeah. retailer or for that designer no for so us part and of, then for, for us, you guys yeah for well. us and what we actually do because we are really lucky like suppliers are everything to us whether we're oh totally like they are just the best and we want to look after them so we always make sure with our photographers we get to give them the shots of anything that we've loaned because we are really lucky to be able to do that and we're really careful with what we do borrow from them like we do photograph them to make sure they're not damaged we check everything it'll get sent back perfectly so you know being able to have that offered to us is is really special and we we recognize that we're lucky to be able to borrow some things and we make sure that we look after our suppliers as well yeah. At the same time, you know, a lot of practitioners borrow furniture and borrow the same furniture and that's always hard and that's not the position we want to be in, particularly mm. now doing furniture. So we're really lucky that, you know, we do get to, if we are borrowing some things, they're quite unique. Yeah, or that access the, yeah, and or, that exclusivity is so important. Yeah, and also though most of the furniture, in fact probably 80 to 90% of the furniture that you see in, in these projects, you know, of more recent four years are, is actually what's there. So that's yeah, a good yeah, thing yeah. too. As, as your client's sort of furniture curation kind of uh, budgets are kind of <laughs> enabling you to actually get more of the stuff for real. It's interesting because I just recorded uh, an episode of the podcast with Derek Swalwell and it's going to be coming up uh, probably this week or whatever. But um, we were talking about styling and staging, I guess probably a bit more from the perspective of kind of a typical architecture practice who doesn't have as much of that. They don't have that in-house sort of interior design and, and furniture curation kind of expertise. And it's really tough for 
studios who can kind of get the architecture part right and then they've got the client's furniture, which sometimes is not so great because they've spent all their budget on the house and they're, they're stuck in this position where it's like, you know, the styling and staging is such an important part of the photography coming together. Um, but it can really be out of reach for a lot of studios. But I think what's interesting is this idea of this access and developing these relationships with these suppliers, which I think comes with the territory of being, you know, what you guys are in interior design, that you've got these everyday relationships with them where you're buying stuff from them and it's going in your projects and all that sort of thing. And does that kind of convert itself into this ability to go and borrow things or do you, do you think that it, is it ever possible to actually have that sort of relationship without, you know, without being that interior designer that's sending them a whole bunch of business every single day? Do you, do you sort of need that collaboration for it to really work? I'm just thinking. I think any business needs collaboration. And, I, you, yeah. know, you know, any rep or any supplier that comes into our studio, like we really, we can't do our jobs without them. Yeah. And they know, like we treat them like with the most utmost Royalty. respect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, so they should be because they're, you know, they're part yeah. of a conduit to something we may not see or something yeah. that's new. And exactly. I really believe in that. And like when we do actually borrow furniture or borrow a chair or borrow something, it's really important that you know, they give us something, we give them something back. And mm. and that's just great relationships. I think if we weren't specifying furniture, yeah, it would be a lot more difficult now. Yeah, it'd be hard, right? Yeah, I, I really do because a lot of people do not lend because things get damaged. Mm. A lot of people don't lend because they just don't have, the, all they've got is what's on the floor and they need it to stay mm. on the floor to sell. Yep. So yep. I can imagine it's a really tricky, tricky world. And I think that comes down to understanding what the interior of that space is going to look like without furniture and how you shoot it and it might limit your publishing abilities as to where it can go. Yeah, you know? it's becoming I think increasingly like really tough to get stuff published or to get really great results from photography if it's, if it's not... Um, really coming together on the furniture and artwork and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, look, I think Seems it's like really... really sets getting, it apart. Yeah, I mean, getting published is hard regardless. Anyway, you know, you, yeah. <laughs> you've got it. There's so much into going into that. You just don't magically click your fingers and you've got this great set of shots. It, it takes yeah. work. Yeah. And it's hard. Like I think when we come off a photo show, we look zonked for days afterwards. Yeah. It's like you're running a marathon. <laughs> Yep. You must come one time when you're down in Victoria or Sydney oh um, and be, be part. But often um, people say, what's it like to be on a photo shoot? Is it fun? I go, fun? No. <laughs> it's great because you get to see the project finish, but it, it comes down to every millimetre and it comes down to those relationships that you have with people as to if you need to borrow something or, you know, if you need to bring something into the home that isn't there that is also yep. you feel is an integral part of how that interior might come together. And you've got a question, yep. is it, you don't just go and borrow a heap of stuff because it's a heap of stuff. You've got to actually say, well, does it actually work with the philosophy behind what we've done? So you've got to be able to marry all of that together anyway. Yeah. When you started working with NHO and, and working with them as a, kind of your PR and communications advisors and helping you with that, is there anything that you learned about the process of kind of engaging with the media or organizing shoots that is now part of the process that's something that maybe they've added into the mix or going from having to sort of do everything yourself at that point to getting some to getting some outside help is there anything that changed about the process I think there's some some key drivers I think it's an integrated approach with marketing and working with Neil Hugh it's yeah. I've learned that they know as much about what we're doing as what we are planning to do and it's a really close relationship. I didn't think it, like communication, it is communications really, but it is yep. actually the key. Like there is a lot of dialogue and a lot of good dialogue um, and it's about me also having uh, an open mind as to them putting some things in front of me that I would not have really thought about before when it oh, comes to such, publications. Such a, where are they kind of getting you out of your comfort zone when it comes to 
media or trying well, on something Well, it might different. be like I would have always said no to something. I'm not sure about that. But then when you actually go into the analytics and the science of it all, there's some really good reasons as to why you should look at some things maybe that you're not looking at. And, yep. you know, they are right on top of all of that. And they're also yep. right on top of, you know, where the future is going um, from, yep. for brand value and for narrative and for, um, you know, where you put your projects and what they mean as well. Can we get one example for free? <laughs> <laughs> one well, example of, of what, a project. Of what the future of brand direction looks like. You can't just leave that hanging out there and not and not give us at least one sort of tasty well, muscle. Well, I, I just think, you... I think that every, every practice is different. Yeah. But for me, I've always said to the guys, to Neil and to Card, Cardia looks after us that, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't always want to be the same. I really feel like brand value, especially after 23 years, is actually being diverse and thinking differently and approaching things and stories differently and having an open mind to keep not only, you know, the work fresh but also our inspirations as a studio fresh. So often Mm. I will ask them to put different things in front of me to to do that and I might be Dave really stayed in my ways on some things but they are very good at at making me realize well maybe that's not so stayed anymore you know yeah so it is it is about looking at the future it is you know I had a meeting about our website the other day and and they're talking about well let's just do a virtual gallery where somebody can walk in and and look on the walls and I'm like going oh my god is this going to be my website of the future you know so It'll, you just don't you just don't know is this my two hundred thousand dollar website we're about to uh, embark on uh, exciting it, 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 can't it is, wait to when, visit when the he, gallery when he actually said that it was like oh my god is that what's going to happen you know is that are the our websites we're, all going to change to virtual walkthroughs yeah. into the studio yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you How go will and artificial intelligence play a role in this new website that's what exactly we exactly and the reason i sort of asked i was in the whole website world is because i've got a lot of great shots that our photographers do like yeah. we our numbers on a typical shoot, Dave, could it be anything from 40 to 70 images? Now, yep. I can't flood the website with those because people will just get sick of all these images. Yep. But I've also got some clients that are really, really private and mm. I want to be able to have a private gallery or a gallery if everybody wants to see the full suite of the job, they can go in and actually yep. see that. So I'm sort of this is how this whole conversation about what is the future of our website going to be like. It's about actually understanding, you know, what we want to share and what we want to celebrate and other yeah. things that are more private. So, you know, it's it's quite interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I like this idea of, you know, you're getting to this point with the practice where you are interested in not letting things just sort of be stagnant and the same as they've always been and as an established brand you've gotten to this stage now where you're kind of thinking, oh, how, what can we what can we do that's maybe a bit more innovative or a bit more adventurous that maybe we don't see every other sort of studio doing? Because I think like, you know, as studios kind of get their marketing together, there's certain best practices in the industry that you want to aim for and do things in a particular way at a really high level of quality. And it's usually about kind of moving up that scale in terms of quality and working with better photographers and better branding people and all of that sort of stuff is what it kind of feels like. But maybe once you've already done all of that, you're at this next level where it's like, oh, well, now we need to be kind of different. You know, we don't want to just be the same as everybody else. Is that sort of what the process kind of felt like a little yeah, bit? Yeah. Uh, look, I don't think I want to be different for the sake of being different. Mm, I, just to stand out or whatever. Or just to stand out. I just want yep. to be continued to be a little bit challenged and I want to learn more. Yeah. Like, you know, when we undertook um, the the works book that we did, which we did mostly through COVID and it was, Mm. you know, locally published and locally printed to support our industry. Yeah. It was amazing. I got to learn how a book yeah, so you guys got you guys put did together. a book. You yeah. put together a book. What yeah. an amazing thing and I accomplishment. Pretty, yeah, I I learnt everything from, you know, writing to placement to <laughs> every single page to art direction, yeah. to costs for paper, to 
yeah. colours on paper, How many everything. GSMs or yeah, whatever on the GSMs, paper. GSMs, like, weight of I the book. Know, yeah, weight of and that was that yeah, was really expertise. really great. And I, I think sometimes it's good to be pushed a little bit out of your comfort zone to learn new things because it helps you open your mind about how you think about other things as well. Yeah, I don't really believe that I just want to do things to stand out or be different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I do believe that experience in very in different things makes you. I don't know, more efficient, makes you inspired, but also gives you a level of innate creativity in the way that you think. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, we, we've always been really strong on the projects that we do and we've always, even though they're all different, they've got a design thread that's consistent um, and that's really important because I don't want to just say all of our projects are different. There is a, a MIM design thread on every single project mm. and that is a driven factor of what we do but why does it always have to be about projects it could be some different things that I might be looking for in the future who knows wait trying what? to figure that out <laughs> at the moment that's kind of cryptic I have to try and guess what that means yeah maybe <laughs> yeah okay interesting no but I think also from personally for me like being involved with the DIA and the national registration like that's really important so it is actually as a practitioner getting yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit on some different things that may not necessarily always be about the projects yeah in terms of not about the projects you strike me as the sort of business person who is probably likely to open multiple businesses at some point. I get that. I get that in my crystal ball, this idea of you launching some, you know, enormous product company or something along those lines. Like, is there any, anything like that bubbling away in the background? Uh, that's the long-term play for the MIM design brand. Mm, I'm not sure. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure at the moment. I think, um, I would love to say yes. That would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? Um, I've always always thought about that sort of thing, Dave. It's just a matter of making sure that first and foremost at the moment it's it's our studio and our work yeah. and doing the DIA thing is really going to take up a bit of my time. But, you know, I'm always open to those sorts of things. So it's never say never. Okay, cool. Love it. Ma'am, I think I've taken up enough time of yours on a public holiday. Go enjoy yourself. It was awesome speaking to you. Uh, thank you for sharing everything about you, yourself and your studio very um, authentically and honestly and openly. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so thank you for coming on the podcast. Dave, thanks for having me and it's great to chat and um, happy Anzac Day and it was good to see that there were no fighter jets flying over <laughs> your house. Oh, we got lucky, didn't we? No, yeah, it was we perfect, did. So. We did. Thanks, Dave. No worries. Thank you. See ya. Bye. That was my conversation with Miriam Fanning from MIM Design. If you'd like to learn more about MIM Design, you can visit mimdesign.com.au. You can also follow the studio on Instagram at mimdesignstudio. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.